How's it going, guys? I'm Zeke. And I am Jake. And you're listening to the Cinema Sideshow Podcast, episode 102. Ah, oh, man. it's It's been a time, Zeke. This is our final episode for 2020. Thank... It is. God. <laughs> we got through it. We did it. We're alive. We are alive. We are well. And we are ready to see off this year. Yeah, thankfully. Um, there's it's It's been a time. I guess we'll talk about some... Stuff we're excited for in the next year, but beforehand, Zeke, yes, are you ready for your film quote from the year 2002? I am ready. Now, I couldn't quite confirm this, but this quote, it sounds like it came from this film. Okay. And you've definitely seen it, so let's see. All right, Zeke, the quote is the following. <clears throat> a good cop can't sleep at night because he's missing a piece of the puzzle, and a bad cop can't sleep because his conscience won't let him. There's a key word in there. <laughs> Can I uh, get that repeated to me? Sure. A good cop can't sleep at night because he's missing a piece of the puzzle. And a bad cop can't sleep because his conscience won't let him. Is this insomnia? Ding, ding, ding. Yes. There you go. Cool. That is said by Ellie Burr, who I believe is Hilary Swank. Yes. And uh, in the 2002 Christopher Nolan film, Insomnia. Um, I, that was a hard one, so I'm glad you got it. Yes. How am I doing? Uh, you are now two for one. Oh, two for zero, sorry. Oh, wow. Look at that. Two, uh, two nil. So you got a bit of a breathing room. <laughs> yeah. You can relax now. Um, I'm just going to get you harder were, and harder. Because you were back and forth. I was like losing and winning and losing and winning. Yeah. It was bloody insane. But um, yeah. Zeke, how was That's, your... That's uh, one of my, uh, my favourite Nolan films. It's a bit of a hidden gem in my yeah. opinion. I, I can't say the same. It's probably in the lower end for me. I still probably prefer it to Tenet. But mm. um, they're not good performances and all those. I'll give it another go. But um, Zeke, how was your Christmas? It's been exhausting. <laughs> you know, I said this to you <laughs> off, off the podcast. It was It's just the build up. I'm, I'm a big Christmas lover. I do love mm. this time of year. And the day is always pretty great. But it's the build-up, and oh, interesting. Um, the and the funny thing is, it's the first time I haven't been working up to Christmas. So normally, I'm working last five years or four years. I've been working in retail, um, right? Yeah, right up to yeah, literally on Christmas Eve, I'll be working. Mm. Um, and this is the first time I haven't had to worry about any of that. And I thought that would mean it would be a more calmer time, but it it really. Yeah, just has it's been a bit chaotic. Yeah, I'm uh, looking forward to the new year. Well, that that's the thing. There's always the week between Christmas and New Year is always like a weird week. Well, yeah, because you've only got yeah, you you're kind of in a bit of a holding pattern. Yeah, because he's like, well, I'm ready for the new year, but you don't really want to do anything mm. in that time. I I get it. It's it's a strange time, but um, yeah. Yeah, no, it's been. How about you? How was your holiday? Yeah, it was all right. We spent the day with the fam. Um, I said this, um, I said this with my friend Saturday night because I just had so much going on that day and I didn't do any Boxing Day shopping. Mm. I was like, this is the longest Boxing Day ever because I'm used to that day usually just being I go out and buy a few things that I maybe didn't get for Christmas. Got a lot of good stuff uh, this year. I was just telling you, got the Sopranos box set, so I'm finally going to start that show. And I got Shit's Creek, the complete series, mm. so I'm excited for that. And yeah, all, all that good stuff. So, well, yeah. Speaking of uh, good stuff, what's some of the good stuff that you've watched from the last week in oh, film? Oh, goodness me. <clears throat> so I've watched, uh, including the film of the week, I've watched nine films. 
Um, so I'm just going to see how many I can blast through pretty quickly. They're all pretty relevant, though. They're all 2020 films. So it's a good way to end the end the year in the podcast. Mm-hmm. Just smashing through some of the ones I may have missed. Yeah. Or the ones that recently Have dropped. you broken 300 films this year? No. I think I'm, like, at 265. Okay. So I'm, I'm definitely not going to crack because I'm not, like... I'm definitely slowing down after this week, so I think I'm going to end at about 270. But that's a, I'm that's happy a very with that. strong effort, though. You're over 300 now, I think. I broke 300 this week. Woohoo! So. Jesus Christ, that's all right. Well, all right, I'll I'll ship through some of these. Uh, this one was on YouTube. I imagine it's meant to be on the the Blu-ray box set or collectors or whatever. But I watched the Skywalker Legacy, which is the the documentary on the Episode Nine uh, production for Star Wars. And I've seen... There's actually one for each film now. Okay. So there's one for Force Awakens, one for Last Jedi, and one for Rise of Skywalker. Um, and much much like the films themselves, it's probably the weakest one, in my opinion. I mean, it's fine if you want to learn about the production. Mm. Like, it's cool. The amount of work that goes into those films... Well, them you know, trying to bar- rationalise some of the decisions they made. Well, that a lot of it's not even to do with that. I actually found it funny, because the only times they talk about like the story and the characters... They cut to, like, two people at a bench with a bunch of, like, story script-writing books on the shelves. I'm like, well, you're not fooling anyone with those books. <laughs> they're, just, they're just there planted <laughs> while they make shit up. Um, no, but, like... Yeah, it, that decision we made. Oh, boy. <laughs> well, that's the thing. It mostly and very smartly focuses on just the, the, the production design and the making of. And it, it's kind of cool because it, it actually... Some of the shots parallel when they cut to some mm. of the behind-the-scenes stuff from... Uh, the original film in 1977. So sometimes they would have like, you know, Carrie Fisher messing up a line and it will cut to her messing up a line in the original Star Wars. And some of the juxtaposition stuff was quite nice. It kind of, it, it rhymes as a certain someone yeah. may say. So that well, was nice. There's some positives. I always found the best yeah. stuff of the behind the scenes stuff from episode nine was all of the actors trying to rationalize. <laughs> like the interviews and stuff? Yeah. A lot of yeah. them trying to uh, sell the film, yeah, which I always yeah. found. And they always avoid story points. They always like I've, work around it. My favorite one, there's an interview where someone's talking to, um, I forget her name, plays Rose. Mm. And they ask like, oh, what sort of character arc do you have in this new episode? And she just laughs. Like she laughs and then has to like hold it in. Yeah. I was like, that's amazing. Well, one of my other ones is... um. Uh, Dominic Monaghan, who plays mm-hmm. Merry in Lord of the Rings, he actually does have a couple of lines in episode nine. He's yeah. like, I'm a blink and you'll miss yeah, it character. I that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, they, um, it was kind of like the whole Game of Thrones thing where they just couldn't, Same thing. They couldn't hide their disappointment, which mm. is fair enough. But uh, I thought it was a fine docker. I watched it on YouTube, so it's not hard to find if you mm-hmm. want to look for is it. Is it on Disney Plus? Um, well, it might, might be actually. That's a good point. I might check that. Um, all right. So the next film I'm going to uh, talk about uh, Netflix films. So if you have Netflix, you can watch any of these right now. I watched Midnight Sky, which is the new George Clooney film that he stars in and directed. What do you think? Uh, I was pretty, I was pretty disappointed in it. To be honest, I made the joke on Letterboxd. I was like, "It's called Matt McCaffrey's The Road Now on Ice," which is uh, except it's even more nihilistic, which I didn't think was possible, but. Um, it, it, it felt like a very disjointed set of two stories right. because you have George Clooney, he plays this scientist in like the near future and he's on this sort of Atlantic um, lab or he's in a lab in the Atlantic and he's one of the last surviving humans as the world is slowly dying and destroying. Mm-hmm. So it's kind of the end of the world and that sort of has the I Am Mother aesthetic of the inside of the lab mm-hmm. and then it kind of it cuts to outer space on the ship where it feels more like Annihilation 
in terms of the visuals and um, they got like Felicity Jones and is it Felicity Jones? I think so on it. And like a few other people who um, they're returning home, but they don't realize that it's destroyed. And it just feels so jarring, the two stories. Mm. Like I just didn't like the way it was done. It, like I thought it should have just been Clooney's story because I couldn't tell what the themes. I was like, there, maybe there's a theme of like loneliness and isolation and, and human survival. But it was like, if that was the case, one, then they just focus on Clooney's story and they don't cut away until he makes contact with them. Is I don't even know if that's a spoiler. I don't care. <laughs> but um, I was now I was very disappointed. No, nothing about it felt. It, it it was a lot like Ad Astra and Gravity and Interstellar and and to an extent the road all sort of meshed together. But none of the holes or none of the parts were better than the hole, and mm. none of them were better than the clear inspiration. So I was like, it, it felt like a waste of time in a lot of ways. That's fair. I, I've unfortunately, if for the most part, I've not found too many George Clooney directed films to be mm. amazing. A lot of them kind of sit in that middle of the road. I think, yeah, I kind um, of see what you mean because I know he did Superb Superbicon. Is that one? Of yes. You? Yeah, and that, I know that wasn't greatly reviewed. I think Good Night and Good Luck was probably his only like pretty decent film, but even I found that pretty cold and. Sort of forgettable. Yeah, I watched Ides of March, got nothing out of it. Mm, okay. Um, I think he did Monuments Men too, if I'm not... Oh, okay, interesting. Which also was left with a relatively uh, seldom uh, res- lukewarm response, so... Yeah. Um, yeah. It's a good point. I've never seen anything directed. I will probably directed. still give it a watch, though. Um, the Midnight... Mm-hmm. Okay. No, just, no, you just, go again. Give uh, it a go. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I'm not going to stop you. I'll probably be left with that. I did actually also watch something that was recently added to Netflix. Okay. Um, a film starring uh, a pretty decent lineup, um, all things considered. Um, Ethan Hawke, Chris O'Dowd, and Rose Byrne. Um, oh, yeah. And this is Juliet Naked. Um, and I'll just I'll read you a quick log line here. Annie is yep. stuck in a long-term relationship with Duncan, an obsessive fan of an obscure rocker, Tucker Crow. When the acoustic demo of Tucker's hit Hit record from 25 years ago surface. Its discovery leads to a life-changing encounter with the elusive rocker himself. So this is basically um, a really good uh, three-way performance here between these three. Um, it's kind of a an interesting perspective of, of a film that's kind of funny, but it's it's got a nice heart to it, I think. Mm. Uh, very easy-watching film at this time of year, I find. Um Really good performances, particularly from um, Chris O'Dowd and um, Ethan Hawke. I found they were the two uh, stronger uh, of the three, but mm. um, particularly Chris O'Dowd, which had to play a kind of obnoxious, self-centred boyfriend, which I've not seen him in a role like that. Normally okay. he's the likeable character, so it was really interesting to kind of... Refreshing. Yeah, absolutely, yeah. And I always like Ethan Hawke and pretty much anything. Mm. Um but, yeah, I, I would give this a watch. This one was quite interesting. Okay, cool. So that one's on Netflix too, eh? Mm-hmm. Recently added. Perfect. There you go. Well, the other one, you have seen this, and we talked a bit about it last week, but now that I've seen it, we can go into more detail, I reckon. Mm-hmm. I watched The Prom. Mm. And, uh, so how was your trip to The Prom? I was... <laughs> this is... In terms of watching a film and deciding whether I liked it or not, I'd never been on a roller coaster so much. <laughs> like, yeah. every 20 minutes, I was like, I don't like this, and then I uh, kind of... Okay, I kind of get with it. No, I don't like this. I just, it was such a roller coaster. And I ended up on the lower. I ended up giving it two and a half stars, which mm, I think it was a little warmer than you. Maybe, yeah. I, I just sat on three. So I just, I ended up 
the fact that I was so distracted watching the film by whether I liked it or not just kind of solidified it. It was like, I'm not really having a fun time with this. The first line in the film is, let's get right to it. And it, it feels sort of like an analog to just like fast, everything's happening. And like, I mean, I love that opening number. I think it's one of the highlight scenes I, the, of the film. The, all of that stuff's great. Like the music and the blocking and the, the camera movement. I thought that was all fine. Like the spectacle of it. Yeah, I actually find his weaker elements for that film are actually the stuff that isn't um, the stylized mm. numbers. It's the reality side of the musical genre. Whereas I think if we were to comparatively, a good comparison is probably something like La La Land to mm. this film. And I think that's what La La Land did a lot better was the reality stuff. Um, right. It did really well with its numbers and stuff, but m- mixing the two, whereas it felt very, uh, jarring the transition sometimes between numbers and and yeah the the one reality. I f- there's a scene in in the prom that there's a scene with the the girl and the one that um that she likes she mm-hmm. wants to take to the prom they're sort of having this relationship where one of them's not open and the other is and it gets to the point where they they get into this argument that might break up and they're both about to start crying it's a really intense scene and then mm-hmm. they just start singing and that really like threw me I was like oh like I get it's a musical but like this was a really good scene and then they mm-hmm. sort of interrupted it with the music like i wasn't again like I'm, i don't hate the movie at all but no and i actually think i was i remember finished watching it and i was like it's actually refreshing to have a musical film this year because mm. apart from cats at the start of the year <laughs> um which we all have long forgotten about with oh i know. still think about some of that <laughs> every day of my life Zeke. <laughs> um <laughs> It's it, and it's nice to see someone because obviously you know that's the Tom Hooper and mm. he obviously had Les Mis so you know he's had a couple of cracks at it. It is nice seeing Ryan Murphy finally jump into this genre um, of musical films because he's done he's done quite a few stage to script uh, stage to screen adaptations now. I think this is his right. third or his fourth um, that he's done between this and I think it was. Um, this and normal heart and uh so there 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 are other options out there for it so i find um he's definitely working at his niche now of this this a lot of lgbtq films are what his focus are definitely going to be yeah no i i get that i just i was, I was a lot <clears throat> there were a lot of things distracting like even the the characters like um mel streep's dd Dee Dee allen and like i just they were so unlikable and i was like i get it and there's meant to be an arc here where they become a little more likable, they become less self-centered, but it just, it was just, the tone was just off. It's about 20 minutes too long, too. I it's think pretty it long. Be, it's tighten, really long, You yeah. could tighten it, definitely. You could yeah. make it a little bit more focused. Uh, uh, yeah, I, I just had a lot of it. The, um, the other one as well was, so Joe Ellen Pellman is, <clears throat> plays Emma, the girl, mm-hmm. like kind of the main girl who's going to prom. I couldn't tell. I'm like, I'm bad at this kind of stuff, I admit, but like, was her stuff auto-tuned the entire time? She just felt her scening was so off compared to everyone else in the film. I would have to revisit that one. Yeah. But... It just uh, it just did not... It looked like bad lip sync, honestly. I just... Then, I, yeah. I, I'm alone in this. Like, I've looked it up and everyone's like, she's amazing. So I'm like, okay, maybe, I, maybe I'm not good at reading the mm. stuff, but... um. Yeah, I didn't recall any issues with the vocals. I thought that was one of the stronger elements of the film, mm. actually, was the singing um, for the most part, because it definitely felt like they got a lot of people that were more than capable of singing to perform yeah. this one. Um, 
But yeah, that's an interesting point. No, nah, that's fair enough. So I, I, I think I was just ultimately too distracted to confirm that I liked the film. Now, this the one... The colour was something that was a little dizzying at times. <laughs> how much colour is such a vibrant I've stopped, colour palette. I stopped pretending that any of it was motivated. I was like, I'll just let it run. <laughs> just let it go. My favourite was the one where they were singing... They were doing that number where they have that really emotional scene and then they do the number... And the lights in the school were literally magenta and cyan lights right. beaming down and they weren't motivated. They were just, they literally were, well, they were motivated in the sense that those lights have now magically changed colour or I guess in that diegetic world they are that colour, maybe? I don't know. I, I think diegetic lighting is less important when it's a musical because it is so stylized. I like, I, I'm not going to get angry about that, but just the funny. way, the look of it, I'm like, I don't know. It feels like vomit one way or another. Um, the other one I really wanted to say or talk about, so this one we mentioned in some of the awards stuff, we talked about Ma Rainey's Black Bottom, which is new to Netflix. It's um, Chadwick Boseman's sort of swan song performance. And um, I thought he was brilliant in this. I really, like, I was shocked how good he is. I think he's a shoe-in in terms of best male performance. Mm. But um, uh, this is a really great film. So it's based on a play by August Winston, who I'm going to talk about more in just a minute, and it's one of those sort of single-setting films where it's about it, uh, this band led by Mal Rainey, who is sort of the real-life uh, mother of blues, mm-hmm. as they say, uh, trying to record an, uh, an album, album or a record. And it sort of all takes place in this very claustrophobic, very hot uh, studio. It kind of reminded me of uh, Do the Right Thing with the heat and everything. Mm-hmm. And uh, I just thought it was... I thought that the... the the characters were really excellent. The performances were really excellent. Um, Viola Davis plays Ma Rainey, and she's really excellent in it. And um, just, I was surprised that Disney let Chadwick Boseman play this character because he's mm. pretty messed up in a lot of ways. Like, I won't spoil it, but like, he does some stuff in this film that's pretty messed up, and he's pretty hot-headed and kind of a sexual deviant. And all that. I was like, oh, they they let Black Panther do this on screen. Like, we don't know what happened with Chris Evans, so I was kind of. I'm surprised they let him do that, but um, I thought this film was really excellent, the way they play with the inner hierarchy of the band, but even just like its wider post-Civil War commentary on um, you know, African-Americans owning jazz and trying to keep the white man from taking jazz from them mm-hmm. and like all that. And it's very, very subtle, but it's in there. And I just thought all of that stuff was excellent. And there's a documentary also on Netflix called Giving Voice, which sort of... Um, supplements that and it's more about it's a documentary about august winston's uh sort of he's passed on and he has this kind of like tim winton this sort of um acting uh monologue competition that kids around minorities around america can join in and do monologues and end up on uh, uh what's it called on broadway and um i thought that was a really great documentary that i think is a perfect uh kind of double screening with mm-hmm. Ma rainey's black bottom so really love those films yeah well that's uh that's intriguing. I'm actually definitely looking forward to watching that one, actually, mm. on if it's just been added to Netflix. Yeah, about a week some... or two ago. Oh, okay, there you go. Pretty new, yeah, new films. Um, I've managed to catch... Uh, I've definitely had a more uh, Disney Plus focus week, um, okay. obviously, with the with the film of the week considered. Mm. Um, I also managed to catch uh, two Christmas films relating back to the holidays. Yes, uh, of course. Tim Burton's The Nightmare Before Christmas and uh, A Muppet's Christmas Carol. Mm. And I enjoyed both quite immensely. I enjoyed Muppet's Christmas Carol that little bit more. I think 
this is definitely comes down to personal preference. I've been a big fan of the Muppets for a long time, so finally being able to watch this film as a as a, a, a adult was interesting, especially it stars a mm. um, relatively young Michael Caine, which is really oh, interesting. Wow. <laughs> um, I don't even know what he looks like. Young. Well, one's ninety, <laughs> one's ninety two, one's ninety three, so he's not super young. Okay, he's, yeah. He's, he's, Older to middle age, I think, at that point. You know, um, Jack Nicholson's 83 years old. I learned that today. It's crazy. Like, what? Um, <laughs> I liked uh, Nightmare Before Christmas. I love the animation style. Mm. Um, I've caught two of now the three from Tim Burton in this style. I think he has Corpse Bride and Frankenweenie are the other Frank two. Frankenweenie's awesome. So I haven't seen that one. It's the only yeah. one I haven't seen. Um, I watched Corpse Bride probably way too young. Um, <laughs> Fair enough. And weirded me out. Um, it's the same like noir style, isn't it? Oh, actually, well, Nightmare Before Christmas isn't done by Tim Burton. It's done by Henrik Sel- Henry oh, Selick, who okay. did uh, Coraline, oh, which also freaked me that out. Makes sense. I've seen I never watched seen that Coraline. film. I saw the trailers and went, "Nope." As a ten-year-old, <laughs> fair enough. The buttons in the eyes—you didn't, you didn't like that. <laughs> oh, that's creepy. Oh, and he did James and the Giant Peach. I have seen that. There you go. So he's clearly got a style. I'm wildly. Out of the loop between all this. But that's, mm. o- that's okay. Yeah, so I enjoyed it. Um, the music wasn't as entertaining as The Muppets Christmas Carol, but I'm going to get a lot of shtick for that. You get you gave it a very high score, The Muppets one. I did. Yeah. Loved it. So good. Something about... So I managed to catch The Muppet exhibition when I was in New York okay. at the start of the year. And just learning about Jim Henson and sort of how he... Were, you know, carved his niche in the mm. industry and how huge the Muppets became over the course of the late 70s through the 80s and 90s. And um, they did that reunion. Well, they sort of did that uh, revamp uh, back in 2009, 2010 mm. um, about I, how everyone had forgotten about the Muppets. And I really I saw loved that. that I saw film. the Muppets movie with Amy Adams. Is that the one you're talking about? Is Amy Adams? She's in it, With yeah. Jason Segel? Yeah. yeah. Oh, I always thought it was... She's in a lot of movies in the 2000s that you forget she's in. Yeah. yeah. I really like that film. Um, and the second one's not as good, but the first one got a lot of praise for sort of its reimagination. And okay. um, obviously his life I found really interesting and it's always really cool to see how many of these films that they did, these parody films. And um, yeah, I really enjoyed it. Um, I managed to catch two other films. One of them I won't be talking about because it... Uh, It'll, you know, we'll be talking about that oh, at a I much see. later point. Of course. Um, the other film I managed to catch was The Year My Voice Broke. And this is okay. my final film I caught this week. It's an Australian film also. Um, I know you have an Australian film you want to talk about. Yeah, yeah. Um, so uh, this one's set back in, uh, this is a 1987 film. Um, and this is just a really interesting sort of coming of age in a small town Australia film. Um in which it's directed by uh, uh, John, uh, I'm going to say John Dugan, who, honestly, this is the film that is probably most synonymous with him. Didn't do too much else, but it has a very young Ben Mendelsohn in it. Okay. They're watching a lot of young people, or people in their youths lately. And a very young um, Noah Taylor, so um, who's been in all kinds of films like uh, Life Aquatic and Almost Famous. And, oh, yeah. Um, you you would have seen him here and around. But yeah. 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 Um, yeah. 
I was a really interesting sort of look into that kind of country. It's set in the nine, early 1960s Australia. So it's a, it's an interesting film. Definitely the landscapes and stuff really just kind of make you want to go out in the middle of the outback. Not outback, outback, but um, more kind of rural country Australia and get some, there's some beautiful imagery out there. Sort of romanticizes it. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. But, you know Noah Taylor played Mr. Bucket in Charlie and the Chocolate Factory? Who's Mr. Bucket? Isn't he Charlie's dad? Really? Because that's Charlie Bucket, yeah. Oh. So Mr. Bucket would be his dad, unless he's his grandpa. <laughs> grandpa Joe. Hmm. Nah, it's definitely Charlie's dad. In the the recent with Johnny Depp, in the recent one. <laughs> um, interesting. <laughs> Sorry, I'm just throwing it out there in yeah. case anyone's interested. <laughs> he plays a couple of things, like the band. He plays the band manager in Almost Famous. Okay. I still haven't seen Almost Famous. That's one, that's one that keeps coming up lately. I'm like, I just need to watch this film. So people yeah. stop yelling at me. <laughs> no worries. Uh, yeah, back over to you, bud. Yeah. Well, speaking of Australian films in the outback, I finally watched The Furnace. Mm-hmm. This has been, I watched it this morning, actually. Um, he invited go. me to Backlot. Um, so it was just a few of his friends. Not for, talking about the weather here. The, the weather. The weather being Furnace-like. <laughs> oh, right. Of course. <laughs> it is a, it's a hot time, Zeke. Mm. It's a hard time in Australia. Uh, no, so I finally saw this film, which, you know, I think I've, I'm sure I said it a couple of times on the show by now that, like, I remember when they were uh, producing or rather pitching the film or trying to get more money from Screen West. And it's actually been in development for seven years, mm-hmm. um, which is pretty insane. Uh, and we have a few friends who worked on it. I took a snap to photo of our friends in the credits, which is pretty cool. But um, I really dug this film, you know. And again, <laughs> it's one of those things of, like, you know, you have friends that you hope it's good and. Yes, well, I'm like, I'm like, wow, this is like a true, honest Australian Western. Like, it just feels so authentic in that way. And it mm-hmm. takes place in 1898, I believe. And the whole mantra, like, the, the motto on the poster is, there is no grace of God here, only the land and all its spoils. And you really feel that. You feel, I mean, that's the Western angle, is that everyone is sort of ultimately out for their own good, and it's all about this chase for the gold. And, um, again, the authenticity and the fact that, like, yeah, there's a... There's plenty of people in here who are either, you know, of Aboriginal descent or Pakistanian or Indian or Chinese. There's so many because, this, you know, it's where mm. everyone migrated and this was the time and everyone was sort of in their own groups, but obviously doing what you need to do to get around. I just, I loved the way it dealt with all of that storytelling. Mm-hmm. Um, and also it looks great. Like, again, the Outback, it looks dangerous. It looks high. It just um, really, really great stuff. So I thought the furnace was awesome. It's still in cinema, so you can watch it at Hoyt's. And I'm pretty sure Luna have it as well. Oh, so Hoyts have it. Yeah, yeah, it's at Hoyts. We saw the poster and we walked past oh, recently. Oh, yeah, right, yeah. Yeah. So I think it's still playing there. And the last film I caught before we move on to other stuff, I finally caught Nomadland, Francis McDormand film, directed, uh, written for the screen, and edited, I didn't realize this, by Zoe Shaw, who's uh, doing the Eternals Marvel film in like two months. That comes out real soon, which I didn't realize. What's that about? I, I don't know. <laughs> I just know it's a Marvel film. I was like, oh, crap. I, I read a bit about how she made this film kind of in secret bef- right before the Marvel shoot, and mm. um, there was going to be a bit of hostility between it because this was a um, not 20th Century Fox. What's the, the the Fox search light? Yes. Whatever the supplementary thing is, and uh, them versus Disney, and then Disney ended up buying them. So it actually ended up being a huge help for this film because then she could sort of edit both at the same time and... Um, all of this stuff, but uh, I was for a long time very excited about this film. It won mm-hmm. the Golden Lion at Venice 
earlier this year. A lot of people are saying it's probably going to win Best Picture, especially because stuff like Mank and that has sort of fallen under the under the well. Mm-hmm. People have kind of already forgotten about Mank, yeah. um, which is weird. But um, So with that said, and just the premise of, you know, Frances McDormand playing uh, this woman in her 60s, the recession's happened, the zip code that she lived in just doesn't even exist anymore, has been wiped, and she becomes a nomad. She has to travel, you know, the Western Americas just to make a living, to work job from job to job to job. And um, I thought it was pretty amazing. It wasn't my favorite film of the year. I put that out front. I still think films like Baby Teeth and Kajillion Air, um, because they have either such great like vibes, or in the case of Kajillion Air, like, just the actual plot is incredible. Mm-hmm. Um, but in terms of sort of the cinematography and just living in this very cinema verite world where it feels like a documentary, it feels like you can tell most of the people in the film aren't actors. And when you look at the credits, you see like, oh, um, Sabrina played Sabrina, Doug played Doug. Um, you can, it's like, oh, they, they're playing themselves. Mm-hmm. And I love that angle of it. But there's also a very flatline pace where I can see a lot of people walking out being like, that was pretty slow. Not a lot happens. There's not really much of a character arc because it just feels so documentary style. It's just Francis McDormand doing these things and living this lifestyle mm-hmm. and just kind of having to tough it out. Um, and it works in all of those levels, absolutely. But I can see people not being amazingly drawn into it for mm. that reason. It's a very grounded film. Yeah, for sure. Um, and I think when I went with Damon, he made, he made a joke. He's like, oh, there were no drone shots. <laughs> I, think, I think he's sick of seeing drone shots in films. And I was like, yeah, you're right. Like you say, it's a grounded film where even in its cinematography, and it looks gorgeous, mm-hmm. beautiful film, the way they, um, again, cinema verite, it feels very naturalistic and the sun... It feels like that's the only thing that's lighting the scene. I'm sure there's like diffusers and stuff in there, but um, it just looks so raw and really beautiful. And um, I think it's I think it's excellent. Well, before we move on, the only other thing I have watched in the last week is I did manage to finish ra- wrapping up my Disney Plus discussion. Yes, the second season of The Mandalorian. That's right. Yeah, um, you talked about wrapping it up. Obviously, last week I on watched the show. it all in one big binge last week. Yes, and I did manage to catch the remainder of season two, mm. and obviously the supplementary show that it is teasing at the end of that is the oh, Boba yeah. Fett film uh, show that they're... the Book of Boba or whatever it's called. Yes. <laughs> um. So, uh, I really enjoyed the season, and you have a very valid point by saying it's more serialized in the second season. It feels like the driving question is more clear and it's yeah. all building to something. And I don't really want to dive too much into story intricacies. I think they've handled some of the cross adaptations really well. Mm. I think for the most part that show has been widely successful and one of the key reasons why <laughs> Disney Plus has probably maintained or got its viewership, mm. that it's you know, its memberships as per se in the last year. Yeah. I mean, Mulan sure sure just didn't do it, or Lady <laughs> and the Tramp. I don't think I've known anyone. Who I completely the... forgot Lady and the Tramp live actions a thing. Mm-hmm. Oh my goodness! I was about to say, if, can you name anyone that's watched that film? No, that was my <laughs> um, silent drop in cinema. <laughs> yeah, so it's like you know, I think it's the only thing on obviously bar the film of the week, which might be mm. the uh, the next sort of tease of talking points. Um, yeah, a lot uh, of people watching film of the week. Yes. A lot of people. So up until uh, this point, I definitely think it's the only thing that's been getting people to 
to come to the, the right. service. The people were paying just for the Mandalorian. Um, the ending, um, obviously there's a, a character that's completely CGI, and unfortunately mm-hmm. I'm like you, I thought it was a CGI head pretty... It was not the best visual effects. No, it, um, it didn't look amazing. didn't look terrible. Uh, it's just that the head is so disjointed from the body. I noticed it straight away, that his head would move, it, but his body wouldn't. The funny thing is, like it's like... Even fil- even films that have, and this show obviously didn't have near as much of a budget as a film would, but... Um, it, I think across all eight episodes, you're looking well, at like at least the Joker-esque budget. I'm even thinking the MCU. Like, there were times when they didn't even use costumes, they just put them in... Like, the, the walking shot, when they're all walking and they're not actually oh, in yeah. the... Or when Iron Man's not in his suit, he's... Yeah. Like, and it, it doesn't... St- it still looks... If you look at it... It's there. Like, you can see it's not real. Yeah. I think. He's yeah. got the floaty head effect in a lot of those. Yeah. And at the you end can't of the day, see it once like, you see it. I don't know why we're doing that. Um, well, I think, and again, we're not going to. Sp- I mean, most of the people, most everyone knows who's in the season two finale of Mandalorian now, but even so, I think the reason we talked about this is the reason it's like that is because the only reason that scene exists is so they can get that actor to portray that character. That's the only reason they did it is so that he could feel better about what happened in the other Star Wars movies. That's, yeah, all, that's yeah. the only reason. Has he been a big critic of the other? Yes. Films? Okay. He hates the new films. <laughs> okay, that's fair. Um, <laughs> that's, that's the only reason they did is, it was to get him to do it. He is story appropriate too, though. Look, it, it, it makes sense. It is motivated. It just felt like the way the story was progressing, it felt like a nice flow. Mm-hmm. And then it just sprinted to what feels like a series finale. It's a big ending. I'll it's give a huge you, I'll, ending, it's yeah. A, it's a real big ending. Um, and thankfully, we're going to have a third season, I think. Mm. And I mean, it's confirmed, yeah. Um, I do think uh, everyone's performances are great. That's really good that some of the, like I said, some I think I said last week on the show, some of the actors, they were voice actors on the show and they've actually got a live action That's performance, right. which yeah. I think is really good. Um, and yeah, it's really enjoyable. I'm looking forward to whenever they're releasing the third season, which I think will be probably this time next year, roughly. Yeah, I I still don't know how much COVID affected season two, mm. or if it did at all. I really don't, but I mean, that might play into it. I'm not sure. Mm. I am worried about this uh, promise of 10 shows, though. That's yeah, just let's, going let's to equate to uh, <laughs> diminishing returns, for sure. Well, they're just going to do exactly what they did with the movies. just going to overpopulate. Yeah, quantity over quality. But this is this is a huge problem with the the Disney formula, and there's only really a few exceptions to the rule, mm. like the film of the week. Um, <laughs> Fair enough. No worries. Yeah. Um, do you have anything you'd like to add in Korea part before we move on? Um, the only thing I'll mention quickly is uh, the Soaring Saturday series we do on Clicker. Um, we just put out like a compilation video, so all twenty weeks or twenty episodes, we've just put them all into one big. 20 plus minute video that mm-hmm. includes their photographs. We sort of just seamlessly put those in there, um, added some music under it, and that's on our YouTube channel now. So it actually looks kind of cool. I was re watching, I was like, wow, we actually did a lot of work. Because like, you do like a one minute video of some drone shots, mm-hmm. and then you do them for 20 weeks, and you're like, oh, it's actually a nice output. Well, you should be selling them on Shutterstock, mate. It's um, <laughs> not a bad idea, yeah. No worries. Well, it's time to move into our film of the week. But, Jake, what are we watching? This week on the show, we're watching Soul. Hello? What the... 
Joe is a middle school band teacher whose life hasn't quite gone the way he expected. His true passion is jazz, and he's good. But when he travels to another realm to help someone find their passion, he soon discovers what it means to have a soul. That's the title of this movie, Zeke. That is the title of this movie, Jake. <laughs> um, so this is the latest addition nice uh, to Disney+, Plus, which has been quite a contemporary topic of this episode. Yeah, I will say, um, you know, spending Christmas with the family, having dinner, and then pulling out my phone, and it being like, Soul is ready to play. I was like, wow, like... Brilliant, brilliant, like, release decision mm-hmm. to put it down on Christmas, not day, Christmas night. Mm. Brilliant decision for yes. Disney Pixar. Um, this is their latest edition. I think we've talked about on the show, we have watched every Disney, Disney Pixar film bar The Good Dinosaur, right? Oh, um, yes. Oh, I haven't seen Brave yet. I still okay. haven't seen Brave. So I have managed to see Brave. It's been... Counted in, yeah, one of the films I watched earlier this year, if I recall. I'm sure, yeah, it sounds familiar. Um, so you've seen every Pixar film bar The Good Dinosaur. I'm just going to have a quick double check of that one, but I'm pretty sure that is the only one I haven't done. There you go. I might do a quick check as well, but I'm confident it's just those two. Um, but a good point is that you, you, we talked about this last week, is that we've done every Disney Pixar film that's come out since we've started this podcast. Mm-hmm. So that includes Toy Story 4 and Onward. And now this is our third one. That's pretty cool. I'm yeah, just double that's check. the only yeah three three is pretty impressive. We've done all right. We've got to go backwards at some point. I think yeah, because I've had a pretty um pretty Pixar heavy year. I've wrapped up all the ones I hadn't seen before. Bar Good Dinosaur, which include Brave and Coco, and um obviously I felt quite positive on Coco, which is another musically based film much yeah. like the one that we're talking about today. Obviously, it's a different genre of music, but, um, yeah. Uh, Jake, initial thoughts? Did you like it? Yeah, so I saw it earlier today, and I, I want to clarify something real quickly with uh, Soul, in the in the sense that people have been talking about this film for the last year. People have sort of been purposely wish-washing onward and pointing at this film being like, this is the Pixar film. This is going to be a masterpiece. This is going to be like super amazing. Pixar at their finest again. And I never quite got that reasoning. I, I, I watched the trailer and I read the log lines. I was like, I don't get why people are pointing at this. as like, this is going to be Pixar's like new magnum opus in a way. And I watched the film. Only I watched it very recently. I pretty much picked you up after I finished watching it. And uh, I still don't get it. It's a great film. But it, that Pixar have made better films in the last few years. I am inclined to most certainly agree with you. Mm. So there are 23 Disney Pixar films, and yes, I have watched 22 of them. And I okay. am 
going to take a safe bet. I don't think the good dinosaur is going to knock off my favourites. No, no one ever talks about that. No one talks um, about the good dinosaur. I think it's the one everyone forgets, and it's the one that I've found, struggled to motivate myself to watch. So, there you go. Um, yeah, I have heard similar hype behind this film. Mm. Um, and I think one of its biggest achievements is we're really seeing now what this animation company can do like some of the visuals in this some sequences which we'll talk about obviously throughout this uh, critique um were breathtaking in their animation style and mm. sometimes it gets very photorealistic in the way they the basically the way light is cast yeah. and their use of the 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 ability they are creating with their diegetic lighting is is in, immensely impressive now but i'm the same i think even in the last 5 years of pixar i could probably pick two films that i preferred in fact one of them i think might be close to my favorite um with coco um the only other ones i could put above it maybe would be the ratatouille or wally which mm, is right. a nice mid well, range funnily, or even the Toy Story films there's probably two of yeah, them up there too I, it's funny because I actually rewatched Up not that long ago oh, I forgot about Up and too. Up is like it's perfect yeah it's so perfect my, my I've said this for a while now I think I've said this since Toy Story 4 my favourite chunk of Pixar is, is that I think it's like a four year period where back to back to back to back they made I might get the order wrong but they made Ratatouille Wally Up and Toy Story 3 you are correct. Like, that was literally the order. Yeah. Um, like, so that's 8 to 11. That's... So from 2007 to 2010. Imagine being a production company and putting out those four films in a row. You know the films like, that bookend what? both of them? What? Cars and Cars 2. <laughs> <laughs> oh, no. Um, but like my point is... Look, I'm not trying to bash Soul. I think it's a great film. It's definitely better than Onward. There's a lot of nice stuff in here. I just I'm only saying this because you're right. The hype was so immeasurable. I mean, the Letterbox score was like four point three or something right mm. now. People really love this film, and I'm like, w- I don't get what it's doing that Pixar hasn't already done before. Yeah, so I find this really I find it really interesting too because I think Inside Out is probably the closest in terms of comparable stories. Yeah. And it's Pete Doctor's last film, so it makes sense. Um, and I'm not the biggest... I'm one of the biggest critics of Inside Out, but mm. I actually think I prefer Inside Out to this film. Okay. Um, I'm not a... I don't dislike this film by any stretch, but it honestly, out of the 23 I'm looking at, it's probably in the lower third. Of Ooh, the lowest okay. third. Um... I could probably, yeah, I'd probably be pushing it around the 15, 16 out of the 23. Because mm. um, I'm just looking at that list right now. And I'm sitting on a slightly less favorable grade to you on this. Mm. Um, and I'm willing to to be open to discussing why my thoughts lead there. I think the story has a little bit of a pacing issue. Um, it's a very fast film. It's over like that. Yeah. It really is, yeah. Um, and I, like, I'm with you. I don't see the story being that far removed from either Inside Out or a lot of, um, Pixar films. I Mm. think this one's actually way more on the nose than some of the other ones that were a little bit more subverted and a little more, honestly, (laughs) a little bit more intellectual. Um, 
I think this also doesn't have a very discernible antagonist, like very um, strong antagonist. Wow, I didn't even think about that. Mm. Yeah, the closest you get is is Terry. And Terry's more comedic. He's comedic. Yeah. He never actually poses any sort of threat. Yeah. (laughs) Like ever. So there, there really is, honestly, all, there isn't that much stake in this film. Mm. Um, because the stake is death, but they don't ever gauge death as really a formidable antagonist. Like you don't ever believe that um, he's in any real immeasurable danger, really. Right. Well, the the whole so let's talk a bit about the story because it's about Joe, who is sort of this wannabe jazz musician. He's stuck as a school teacher. Mm-hmm. He sort of frowns at the the idea that he can be given permanency at this school. Which is a nice, it's it's a, okay. It's a little bit of a cool well, character it's sort of moment. The, it's the giving up of the yeah. dream. Yeah. Well, he doesn't want to be tied down. He doesn't want to settle. Exactly. And his family are like, "What are you doing? Take the job. You need that security." But that's not what he wants. And he's given the opportunity to play at this thing, and uh, it's it's a we buy it. We, it's a big opportunity. And mm-hmm. I want to say, I mean, we talk about the pacing is very fast in this film, but and I remember thinking the exact same thing about Onward. It is kind of impressive how much you learn about the character and the story mm. in, like, five minutes. It's pretty impressive. I believe Onward has a more structured story, though. Yeah. Like, I can clearly identify an act structure, whereas this, a lot happens in the first 25 minutes. Like, mm. a, a lot. lot. You're right. And almost a little too much, I've found. I think, um, I actually think this film's really funny. I uh, I laughed a fair few times. Um, There's some good I actually in think it. this film has compromised some heavier beats and tone to be funnier. Yeah, um, and that's I don't think that's a bad thing. No, but yeah. it just means that it doesn't carry. Like once again, it comes back to people saying this is the quintessential Pixar film. This is mm. a f- which to me a Pixar film is something that can be entertaining, but also honestly have a lot of like more heavier subtext mm. and is actually trying to start a conversation about something or make a statement yeah, or discuss some more serious things through its undertones. I mean, think of Wally and you think of Ratatouille mm. and particularly Wally with its tones or up, yeah. you know, in the first five minutes you're hit with an anvil of emotions. Well, th- th- those are the two best definitions. Is back to back, they made Wally, which mm-hmm. is wonderfully observational in these sort of political themes, environmental themes, and then you have something like up a year later that is just so full of heart. Mm-hmm. There was so much heart and so much, and you're and then you follow it up your with Toy Story Three, yeah, which is... which is a fair bit of both, but a lot of heart as well. Mm-hmm. And you're right, and I, I think. It's this is such a hard film to talk about when you compare them to these brilliant films, but they're made by the same people. Mm-hmm. That you have no choice but to compare them, and I think you're right. And I think this film, the, the I like the comedy, I like the humor, made me chuckle a few times. Um, I mean, some of the stuff I thought of is the scene when like twenty two is like kind of messing with the artist, and someone forgets their line, and someone mm-hmm. drops their music instrument or whatever. The, mm-hmm. Like that, that kind. Of, I was like, those made me laugh. They're kind of funny little. Moments yeah. within the world building, and it sort of motivates that. Well, I like the Jerry and Terry humor. Yeah, like just all the back and forth. And I think one of them's voiced by the initiator. Is voiced by I think it's um going to have to get his name up here. Um, the two the two voices that came to my head were Graham Norton, who's awesome in mm-hmm. this. His voice is perfect for animation, 
And is it Richard Ayoade? Yes. He is. He, I, his voice is great. So he's Moss in IT Crowd. And he's oh, actually yeah, yeah, yeah. in Mandalorian Season 1. He's the voice of one of the robots. Oh, sweet. So they get a lot of those comedy... Um, sort of comedy actors to be the voices of those robots. Like they had Alan Tudyk and Road One and stuff like that. But yeah, yeah. yeah. I actually thought both of them were I actually wrote uh, their names down as like their voices which just stood out to me. And I wanna shout out to Jamie Foxx. He really I really liked him in this role. I didn't see mm-hmm. or hear rather Jamie Foxx because you would listen to Chris Pratt and Tom Holland in Onward it's just them. That is one of their yeah, it's one of the more frustrating parts of some of the Pixar, they've been pretty notable for using from day one, using pretty big Tom actors. Tom Hanks in Toy Story. Um, but yeah. honestly, if you look at the film, if you <laughs> off the top of your head, the films that you like the most from Pixar or generally the most critically liked are the ones that have more subtle voice actors in them. I mean, ones yeah. that you don't icon like <laughs> iconize their voice because their voice is so recognizable. I'm with you. And I've seen Jamie Foxx in a lot of things, and often mm. I actually find his performances kind of jarring. Right. Um, I think the only one off the top of my head I really enjoyed is Collateral. Um, oh, interesting. Because I'm not a big fan of Django, um, but we oh, I can talk oh. about that on an episode if we ever did Django. Oh. Um, <laughs> he is one of the better parts of it, though. Okay. But his voice is quite iconic. He has a lisp, generally. I couldn't right. hear his lisp in this, which I thought was interesting. Um, but well, I completely forgot and i didn't even pick up tina fey was 22's voice oh interesting at all nice and um i find that really interesting yeah because she's also got a relatively iconic voice too yeah i want to definitely give them both a shout out but jamie fox especially i thought i think i think it's kind of like the there's a bit of a loser in his voice the guy who's never quite got what he's always told no through life i think he really translates that in the voice i think that's (laughs) what it was and, like, he's sort of been a loser before in films. I mean, <laughs> Amazing Spider-Man 2. And even the beginning of Django, he kind of has to play a loser. But mm-hmm. um, I I just want to give a shout-out to that performance because it's way harder to do that than it than it looks to really make you forget that he's a famous person doing that voice. Um, and, and just in general, having a primarily nearly all-black cast in this film, which makes sense, you know, with the jazz stuff. And we even just talked about Ma Rainey's Black Bottom, but um, it's all motivated. And I even found this... Little um, sort of paragraph in the Wikipedia page for the film in animation. And I didn't even think about this, but it's called The Dated, if you don't mind me reading this mm-hmm. really it. quickly. It said, Pixar was mindful of the history of racist imagery in animation and set out to create characters who were recognizably black while avoiding the stereotypes in old cartoons. Acknowledging this effect, Doctor uh, Pete Doctor, the director, stated that there's a long and painful history of uh, caricatured racist design tropes that we used to mock African Americans, according to Powers. I don't know who Powers is. The animators tried using, or uh, the animators used lighting as a way to highlight the ethnic diversity in the living world. Pixar sought to create the fine details of these black characters, including the textures of black hair and the way light plays on various tones of black skin. Um, oh, and uh, Bradford Young worked as a lighting consultant in the film, mm. um, so they brought like an actual DOP to come in and actually consult on the lighting stuff. Easily um, one of my favorite parts of the film. It's the lighting mm. through and through in the 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 real world. Yes. Um is in New is, York. In New York <laughs> is photorealistic at sometimes. You mm. you're completely blown away how it, they're using how they're the intelligence. It's really highlighted when um when Terry enters the real world 
and it looks like a cartoon character in a real world. Mm-hmm. It sort of reminded me of like, the Roger Rabbit type. Yeah, his frame, Roger. It's, it's getting to that point. Yeah, and it's like, wait, no, this is all animated. <laughs> yeah. So um, it's really, it looks amazing. And I watched it on a crappy stream. <laughs> Imagine if we saw it in a cinema. Oh, absolutely. Um, yeah, so these are these are definitely some of my, my points that I had from it. Um, what did you think of the story? So I like the script. Okay. And a lot of people were saying, leading up to this film, that um, you know, oh, this is going to be the first animated film to win a Best Picture, and da 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 da. And one of the things is that the script, apparently, that the script was incredible. I, it's a good script. It definitely it rewards you for going in blind, because I went in pretty blind. Like I looked mm-hmm. at the trailers, but I didn't really know much. I was like, okay, jazz musician. He he goes into some afterlife inside yeah, out. Yeah, I might have watched thing. the trailer nearly a year ago, but I yeah. haven't seen or cared to watch anything since then because. Mm. I'm always like, well, I'm going to watch it. So yeah, exactly. Why even bother with any more trailers or research or anything? Yeah, and I think the film rewards you for that because it really, by the 25 minute mark, it's at that point, it's a part of the story that you don't know about. Mm-hmm. If you haven't been, I guess, researching or whatever, it's like by the time that they go back to Earth, maybe in the, I guess at some point, this that that's probably one of the second act mm-hmm. by that point. But once you get to that point, it's like, man, there's really no bets off of what where the script's going to take you. So I liked it from that angle, and that it does take you on a journey. But I agree with you. The pacing is so strange. Yeah. Um, and I think that the sense of foreboding doom and, and the the intimidation that an, an, a good uh, Pixar antagonist brings mm. does create stakes. And this film doesn't have that, because for the most part, all it is is... It's a ticking, really, it's, it's a 22 character observing the world mm. because, you know, she's a, a soul that has never managed to find a spark, which is basically just the purpose, uh, a purpose in life. Yeah. Is at least what... Oh, we assume so. Uh, is yeah, is yeah. what it's assumed, but it actually is more the... Uh, sort of the uh, amalgamation of an identity, I think is probably the... I think it ultimately... What I know, this is actually kind of clever how they do it in terms of the way you see it, because uh, we learn that yeah, the sparks are the, is basically the the main thing that motivates you in life, or, or the thing you're destined to be, whether it's a musician or a mm. soccer player or something. At least that's how but, it's sold to us. Well, exactly, and and what I realize is that when they kind of reveal it, that it, it's more just it, it's it's sort of a moment of time or a moment of living. So when someone, when one of those little kids, they get hit by the soccer ball and their thing goes off. You, oh, they're destined to be a soccer player. It's like, oh, I kind of like the idea that it was just being hit by a football. Mm-hmm. Just that moment in time, that memory. I'm sure we've all got... I remember getting a kitten with a cricket ball in my mm. nutsack. Yeah. <laughs> I remember, that's a memory in my life that I remember. And I, I was like, I kind of like that that's sort of what they're going with that. And that's the moment in time. And the fact that we don't know what 22's defining well, moment we don't know was. even we don't know any of if, if yeah. anything it's we don't know anyone's it's more abstract you're right yeah um every everyone's entitled to have some moment that can alter the type of person they are and mm. and it's more just seeing and living through the world that you know cultivates the the person you are that cultivates your soul if yeah. you want to bring in the title but it, it, at the end of the day the film after that point when we come back to the real world after for the first time after okay, obviously when they swap jo- bodies yeah or... when they've swapped bodies and yeah. joe is now inhabiting a cat 
a therapy some good, cat. There's some good physical commentary there, or com- comedy. Rather. There is, yeah. I'm like, <laughs> I honestly think the humor in this this film is easily one of its strongest points. Um, but honestly, for the next 30, 40 minutes, we're pretty much all we're doing is we're just going through, um, the day to day sort of life of of Joe. And yeah, well, how- there, there's a stake that he's trying to get to the to the jazz club in time. Yeah. And there is the sex of, oh, he's got to get dressed nice, he's got to get fix his mm. haircut. And so there's that, but you're right. Like, what's happening underneath is experiencing the day to day. Yeah. Well, the, the stakes aren't as, yeah, aren't as dramatic. I mean, if you take Doctor's last film inside out, it's, it's sort of the compromising of a child's identity and leading yeah. towards depression and anxiety in this yeah. kid and how she's, over time, as joy and sadness are moving through her subconscious, she's becoming more and more. Uh, despondent to the the world outside, and yeah. there definitely feels like there's a real kind of it gets to quite a heavy stake in that film. Yeah. Um. And you know, if you take a lot of film, you know, even more contemporary ones that aren't from Doctor, you know, you take things like, like in Wally and Up, it's a physical thing that people are pursuing, whether it's a plant or a, a bird, or you know, it, yeah. it, it definitely has a more um physical uh goal in it which obviously then has the layers of subtext around it but. yeah yeah well the idea like in up for example getting getting the house to that the edge of is it niagara falls yes yeah or paradise falls i think in the movie yeah and um but you're right there's the underlining of it represents the marriage and the, mm-hmm. the love of his life and the, letting her go basically yeah, yeah. um and it's it's interesting because this one is basically all it really is is I need to get to a jazz club to have my shot. and Right. Um, Which, look, I get it because that I feel within the contrast or the, the concept of this film, mm-hmm. I think they do a decent enough job at making it, uh, in terms of stakes, making it feel like, oh, he this is what he needs to do. Mm. Because he's spent his whole life trying to get to this moment where he's given a chance. But they don't hammer it in But if anything, much. the film's trying to say that your passions aren't, the f- they aren't completely who you are. Mm. I mean, his his love for jazz and his obsession with jazz, really, and his obsession with the shot is what's compromising the type of person he is. Um, for the because he doesn't appreciate the world around him because he's too busy just having this tunnel vision focus. He doesn't see okay. the talented child in his class in front of him because she he acknowledges well, that she's talented, mm. but. She, when she comes to the door and says, I'm quitting music, <coughs> all Joe can do in his cat body is say, oh, sure away, we have, we've got our own thing to do, rather than nurture this kid that needs that, that moment. And obviously we now see it through 22's eyes, is actually the one that makes I, the child not I like he, gets, he does it does kind of come full circle when, when 22 and him are falling back to earth at the end mm-hmm. and it's like oh he kind of did become like a teacher like a really caring teacher yeah he taught her what a she mentor. needs yeah exactly oh yeah that's, that's literally where they use but um i liked that little sort of subtle full circle moment but i don't, I don't know if i necessarily got that same feeling I, I there's the visual element of when he gets the job and he's on he's so excited he's on the phone that the whole world is basically trying to kill him in that moment he keeps dodging mm-hmm. cars and the 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 thing above him falls in the construction site, just he just misses him. So I, from a visual element, that's him sort of ignoring the world around him. Mm-hmm. I don't, I don't know. I don't know if that's what I got overall, though. Okay. From his character. What do you think of the music? 
Um, I really like the the tracks that play in sort of the more abstract switching between worlds mm. when it gets a little more not spooky but just uh, ethereal. Yeah, like I really dug that music and mm. and the jazz itself. There's actually not a huge amount of jazz in the film, but no, there is a really good scene that mm. um that happens at probably the low point of the film even though it's really not that far away from the final it's that second act is Did- meaty. <laughs> Um, yeah, actually, that's a good point. We should talk about the ending, the pacing of the ending. But are you talking about the scene where it pretty much the music is the only audio you hear? Yeah, Joe is playing it by himself in the apartment. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. With all of the tokens from 22's day yep. in his body. Um, and it's a really it's interesting that um, he's obviously playing that to try and get in the zone, which is... Uh, sort of the meditative, so he can go back up mm. to the greater before or wherever he's going but that's the thing is a really inter- there is some interesting uh uh exposition brought out by graham norton's character mm. moon moon child is it moon child moon, moon, uh, da- moon, moon dance i think it is moon dance i think you're right moon dance um See if I can find. where he moon talks wind. about moon wind. people being too far gone and obsessed in their zone that they often negate the world around them and it actually becomes their biggest uh, insecurity. that's a good point um and that's what happens to 22 and mm-hmm. He ends up becoming a part of the the historical figures. That got a good laugh out of me. It's yeah. Marie Antoinette and all that yelling at her, but the fact that he becomes one of those voices, like well, yeah. becomes the biggest yeah. voice. I like too. that. I like that. Um, it's interesting. Like there's there's definitely um layers to the film. Uh, I'm just saying that I either think the the lack of an antagonist is big for me because it never for me it never felt like the obstacles were the stakes weren't big enough, I think, um, compared to some other films, which really have some incredible antagonists um, and uh, and obstacles for our protagonists and our messages to come through. I mean... We even Ratatouille, you got the guy who owns the the restaurant. Um, You got the critic as well. I mean, he's amazing. You got Otto and Wally. And and you've got um, uh, lots of hugging bear. Lots of loving bear. He's brilliant. Yeah, you're right. Pixar have such a great history of villains. And I didn't even think about that until you mentioned it. There is no villain in this film. The closest is the comedic relief in Terry who gives himself an award at the end. Like... Yeah, he's not. He's not the villain. He's no, not. and I and I'm not. And I think that's the thing that yeah, Pixar are so good with making these kind of uh, layered villains that help really push their their themes across. And, and was there a tangible villain in Inside Out? Um, it was sort of just like the the, the when because joy and sadness were away from the main panel. Yeah, no, I get that. And I, but the way it affects the chart, I got that. I think it was Pete Doctor. Going off the confidence he had with Inside Out mm. to continue not having a tangible mm. villain. That's true. That's I think true. that's what it, this is totally a spiritual success in Inside Out. Absolutely, hundred percent. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Um, but I agree. It feel you're right. You feel that it's missing. It's interesting though because they both because they're spiritual successes. Do they cancel each other out in a way? No. Because what do you mean? Well, like when at the start of Inside Out, all the emotions are born in the child. Right. So I guess it's interesting. Like, would they 
could they coexist in the same universe? I don't. I don't. <laughs> don't get me into this. No, could but be, I will. There I could think be a deep it's, theological debate there. It's could in, these two coexist in the same universe? I think it's in the word spiritual, in the sense that um, they these films feel very similar, but mm. are not the do same. They, do they compromise each other? <laughs> <laughs> You're really going to break my brain with this <laughs> theoretical one. But, um, because one's trying to say one thing, one's trying to say another thing. Well, that's the thing. And like I said, I think this this film, it tries to say... I love... The message is great. It's a great mm-hmm. message of, you know, live in the moment and enjoy the, sort of Appreciate the everyday. Appreciate the world around you. Exactly. But again, you look at it... I mean, Inside Out's message of, of embracing all of the emotions, not just the happy ones. That's brilliant. Mm-hmm. That's brilliant. And I, I don't know. I don't know why... People aren't. I mean, people love Inside Out and people love Coco, and it's like because that has the musical tie as well. Like mm. you said, I just I don't get why people are pointing at this one, and being like, "This is the one." Yeah, I'm with you. I just that I don't. I don't know. No worries. Do you have it. anything else you'd like to add? The one thing I noticed, which is really strange, is the beginning. This attends to how fast the movie goes again. It has you know the Disney Presents logo mm. and then a Pixar animated studios film, like when he falls through the thing. It doesn't actually come up with the sole title card until the end. The very end. I was like, oh, is that is that like the longest wait for a Disney Presents soul? <laughs> it's like Does a, it not come? It's like, no, then? it doesn't. There's like mm. an 80-minute <laughs> gap where it comes up with the, the name of the film. I thought that was interesting. I pick. I picked yeah, it that's up. Interesting. Right away. That is interesting. Well, does Inside Out do the same? Um, probably not. Okay. Maybe let's go back and find find out. But um, I teased a bit about the ending, how fast it is. You're right. The second act is pretty meaty, but then you're right because the low point is when he's done the musical performance and he's alone in the house and he's looking at those tokens, as he said. Mm. That that would be the low point, second, yeah. uh, second act. It's the, his solo ballad, which is definitely yeah. the critical low point because he's finally admitting that he's kind of made a mistake and he's, yeah. um, he's sort of acknowledging the thing that he's been striving and obsessing over his whole life. He finally achieved it and he wasn't left with a feeling of completion because yeah. he always thought he'd be complete by it. And then the film ends five minutes after that. <laughs> it really, it honestly powers because so it's the, maybe fifteen minutes. Like the reason the last I'm, act, the ending when it cut to you know soul credits. Mm. I was, I was like blown away because I'm honestly I'm gonna play it off my phone. <laughs> <laughs> well, it my Disney Plus. It said there was sixteen minutes left of the film. Oh, I don't have it on my phone. Oopsie. And like, well, obviously we were scheduling this show, so I was like mm. keenly aware of like, okay, there's about twenty minutes left. And then the credits roll at 16 minutes. And I was like, wait, what? Yeah, the credits are really long. They got all it, the languages. It, yeah, it's because that's a Disney Plus thing. Mm-hmm. Um, on a, If you watched it on a theater mm. or a disc, it probably wouldn't do that. But um, it felt just the, the beats from him letting, letting 22 back into the world, sort of mentoring her into that state, and then ending up back on the bridge. It's like, okay, now he's going to accept his fate. Oh, mm. we we appreciated what you did. Here you go. He Go back to Earth. Boom, end. Yeah, that that's threw kind me of, off, that's kind of another thing that frustrates me because that takes the stakes away from the film because if anything, he didn't appreciate the world around him and he, and he, he died for it. And then he selfishly took, um, a child, an unborn, uh, spirit. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, opportunity for himself. And then just cause he did a couple of, he helped and mm. he was helpful and he did what other mentors have done with 
plenty of spirits before. Yeah. These greater ones have just decided, oh, you know, we'll give you an extra life. It's like not the other millions and millions of people that are going to the <laughs> to the great beyond just because you were a little bit helpful. Now, I know this is a kid's film, but hear me out. Like, wouldn't it have been way more impactful if now he's mentored this new child mm-hmm. who I guess is going to be a baby now mm-hmm. and maybe conscious of everything that's happened or whatever, but the baby, well, now this new child, 22, is now understands the value of life because mm-hmm. they've spent so long not being alive. Mm-hmm. And then they learn to appreciate the world around them. And the, the, the Joe, the Joe we've been following just accepts that he goes into the afterlife. And as a kid's film, we've seen him in his little soul form for more than half the film. Yeah. So it doesn't feel like he's dying at that point in the film. It wouldn't. And technically it's like, it comes back to their last exchange between, uh, Jerry and, and Joe, which is what are you going to mm. do? And he's like, I don't know what I'm going to do, but I'm just going to appreciate the world around me. And it's, for me, his acceptance that he, he got the, like the, I guess, and I'm with you. I actually do think his acceptance to go to the, the, uh, the afterlife isn't too heavy for a child. In fact, Pixar hasn't shied away from death no. at all in uh, countless of their films. They've actually dealt, Cars is fully about the loss of a, yeah. I mean, Cars is dealing with the death of a mentor. Finding Nemo Cars opening Ray. scene. Opening a million scene. babies dying. <laughs> so, Finding Nemo. Yeah, I actually think the softer hand is actually what takes away from this film. Um, I mean, Up, there's a that the whole film is about dealing with loss and yeah. letting go of a loved one, and the the you know the debate of mortality. Other films have not shied away from other Pixar films yeah. have not shied away from, from death. death, and. The way that they do this, they they spiritualize and they make it such a welcoming thing. Even if he didn't die, maybe he yeah. just took on a mentor role in the in yeah. that um, welcome. I can't remember what it's called. Well, um, I think I think the, the idea is seminars. Yeah, it's a seminar to you or seminar you. I mm-hmm. think it's what it's called. But I mean, I think the idea there was that you can only be a mentor to one child and then you pass on to. I think that was the idea. I'm not sure. So I I don't think he could just do that forever. But you're right because they Pixar they've dealt with death before many mm. times. We've been with Joe more than half the film in his soul state. And I just, I don't know. I, f- I feel it's way more powerful that this person like that he mentored. Out. Like they it just, just, it was so rushed. Because how many other rushed. people have accidental deaths and they don't get to have a second chance at it, you know? To... Well, you're right. It's a welcoming thing into the after. Everyone else there is like chilled. They're chilled about it. They're like, yeah, yeah I'm, I'm 106. I'm ready to go. You yeah. know, it's, yeah, I, it's like the Scott I, Pilgrim getting that life up, you know. <laughs> it's like it's the same thing. He just got an extra life. There you go. I, I just, just as well they used a cat because he's got nine lives apparently. There you go. <laughs> That's how he did it. Yeah. I, I don't know. I just I think that would have spoke to me way more. I think it would have been more. I'm with you. Mm. I think. I mean, even if we take the most recent film prior to this onward, that I mean that talks about the death of a father and it's the the oh, letting yeah. go of a. Yeah. Pixar films don't shy away from death. But yeah, yeah, you're right. It's like. Why has this film suddenly got kitty gloves on it? Yeah, I don't know. Look, and I'm... I don't think it helps the story because it helps. It just adds more rushing meat to the end of the story. I mean, that's so the fact that, that it's such a beautiful way of sending twenty two off, and it's such a great. Yeah, that's great. It's, it's great. emotionally moving, but then to have the five minutes that come after, it's like, oh, well, you were helpful, so you know. And then they do that, and then they add, they even add less emotional weight to it because they do that cutaway joke with Terry and Jerry. 
and how he changes I, the act. I'm not going to lie. I kind of lost it. That, oh, that was so funny. It was really funny. But this is what I'm saying. This film is actually really good at humour. Like, yeah. It's way better than Inside Out at humour. I think right, it's okay. way funnier. It's probably one of the funniest Pixar films I've watched. Okay. But yeah. To say it's emotionally hefty, and I actually think that's one of the vital elements to a Pixar film, is having that intellect and those that emotional... The emotional and humour balance and having yeah, I f- something for kids but something there for adults yeah. too. You watch Toy Story as a child and you watch it as an adult and you're astronomically different, you know, yeah. meanings to it, you know. It just holds up so well. Like I said, when I rewatched Up, I was like, I just, that film never gets old for me. Well, it, I think Toy Story 3 is the best example of a yeah. multimodal oh, uh, thing. You know, you, the, you're sad that, you know, the toys are about to be you know, destroyed, incinerated. In the, incinerated in the furnace. As a child, you're sad because the toy's about to be there. As an adult, you're watching that, you're yeah, like, no, I've had three, I have a three, yeah, the acceptance part. Is yeah, the that's, part that's that, it, yeah. Where an adult loses it because there's a sort of acceptance of mortality there. And yeah. Whereas the kids are like, no, don't go in the incinerator. And the adults are like, oh my God, I've spent 20 years of my life watching these. Yeah. And then they went and ruined it with Toy Story 4. Okay, um, cool. Do you want to move into highlights? Hey, I, call, I called Toy Story 4 not good from the very beginning, from day one. I was not. I was. I felt off about Toy Story Four from day one. Just too many times yeah. going back to the the cash pot. <laughs> Even Pixar's victims of it. Uh, they're doing Toy Story Five. You know that. I'm pretty, cool. <laughs> I'm pretty uh, sure they are. You hear my tapping? Like yeah, more yeah, aggressive. Yeah. Um. Yeah, Jake. You ready to move into highlight scenes? Yeah, let's do it. What, what was it? What was your highlight scene? Honestly, either. And we've talked about it quite a bit. I loved the low point bit with Joe playing the piano by himself and yep. constructing this piece, this freestyle piece based around the symbols in front of him. And you know, when he takes the, the sheets of music off, so we know he's going completely off the off the record, and ah, okay, he's just yep. using these symbols of the day. That's um, like the word "off the record." Yeah, T- take this off the record. Um, beautiful <laughs> bit of diegetic, and like you said, the absence of sound of everything else. We don't hear the hum of the traffic. We don't hear. Yeah. That was really effective as well. When when he wakes up in his own body finally, mm-hmm. and he's in the subway, that is that is also a scene where it's just the music. There's no other sound of him waking up and people make like, that was really effective mm-hmm. as well. I wanted to just give that a little shout out. Mm. They do that quite a few times where they isolate um, sort of the environmental soundscapes and just allow a diegetic piece of music like the busker. Mm. Um, oh, that's great too. Um, His little track and her s- sitting there watching. Mm-hmm. Actually, that was really cute when she passes like the half-eaten mm. bagel or sausage or whatever it was. Because in my head, I'm thinking of like the semiotics of like, oh, that that has value to her and he's giving it to yeah. this musician. And Yeah, I, I don't know. I, that, that was great. Yeah. I liked it. Uh, my highlight scene... Is probably for strange reasons. I always pick a strange highlight scene. Probably the very first scene when it opens in the band room and all the kids are sort of struggling. Bar the one, mm-hmm. he sort of has that moment where he explains how he fell in love with jazz. It's like I said, Pixar are great at throwing a lot of information at you quickly, where you learn about who Joe is and his life in yeah. short, short succession. But I loved that it just that 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 was how they opened the film is. No flashy, over-the-top animation. Like, even Toy Story 4, like, I like the opening, but it, it opens with an action scene where they're trying to save uh, the, the car and all the rains come. It's very... It's showing off the animation a lot, and you're sitting there like, wow, this is incredible. But 
Well, I love Coco's opening scene with the mm. moving through the town. Yeah, yeah. Was, oh. But they're all kind of showy and, and usually not in a bad way, but I kind of like the, the balls this film had to just mm. open. Oh, it's just the band room. And, and the diegetic Disney, lo- uh, Disney logo. They use the, the mm. band, the children's band, to play the oh, really yeah, badly the music under the... rendition <laughs> version of it. <laughs> that, that was pretty clever. It's like, like a recorder that. meme. But yeah. like it's the kid playing the <laughs> The record. 20th Century Fox <laughs> the recorder yet. <laughs> no, but it, it, it did remind me of that. And even, again, I know it's juxtaposing the super experimental animation with the characters being in 2D and the sort of the star background is the great mm. beyond. It. Like, there's a lot of experiment, experimental animation in here, which I love. But you're right, it juxtaposes with the New York stuff, which looks so real. And even the way it's edited, the way it cuts from that scene to the next, and it's sort of no real ambient mm-hmm. music. Was like, this feels like a live-action film, the way they're cutting, and it, it's not very flashy animation-wise yet. I really... I loved all of that. No worries. Well, mm-hmm. Soul is currently out on Disney+. Plus. Yeah, uh, if you want a short film, like Disney, like Pixar always do, you can watch Borrow, or Burrow, rather, which is a 2D animated film that was meant to play before this film. Okay. So go Have on Disney+. Plus. I watched it. It's cute. Like, it's yeah. fine. It's cute. It's cute. <laughs> no worries. Well, speaking of streaming platforms, what's new to streaming platforms and cinemas this week, Jake? Pretty uh, pretty light week, Zeke, ending the year. This week on Netflix, we got Green Book. was the Best Picture winner from a couple of years back. We it's liked of... Green Book before it won the oh, Oscar. Oh, Green Book. Yeah, yeah. We yeah. watched that. That was our first film we watched with no audience, wasn't yeah, it? Yeah, if it was you, me, and James, and that was it. Mm-hmm. Empty theater. It was... Made for, a, made for a way more... Inter- I imagine that would have been less entertaining had we not had the cinema to ourselves. Yeah, true. I really want to rewatch Green Book, knowing what it went on to do with the Oscars and everything. It was mm. like... It, I don't know. We enjoyed it at the time. We did. Yeah. I think in hindsight, it's a very, <laughs> it is a very Oscar-baity film. Yeah. For sure. I understand the arguments, for mm. sure. Um, also coming to Netflix this week is Death to 2020 which is a mockumentary from Black Mirror creators Charlie Brooker and Annabelle Jones, and it stars Samuel L. Jackson, Lisa Kudrow, Lawrence Fishburne, and many others to just trash the year 2020. (laughs) There's a good one for Netflix that's coming out very soon. Coming to cinemas this week is The Dry, which sees Eric Banner return to his drought-stricken hometown to attend a tragic funeral... (laughs) Uh, to attend a tragic funeral? Is that what it... Is that the write-up? I guess so. Uh, but his return opens up a decades-old wound regarding regarding the unsolved death of a teenage girl. So I saw a trailer for this. This looks interesting. Okay. It's an Australian film. Yeah. Yeah, it is. Um, pretty local, I'm pretty sure. It, it looks like WA. Mm. I don't know if it's like in Sydney. It looks it's good very to see Eric WA. Banner in something. Yeah, he's working. Yeah. But yeah. Kind of always weird to see him... With his, because he's he's Australian. He's he's an Australian actor. Pretty sure, but he yeah. Has a very, not a very Australian voice. You know, like a lot of Australian actors when they Was have it, their. Is it the Hugh Jackman thing where he just sounds different in a lot of roles? Yeah, maybe because he he does play a lot of American characters. Yeah, so maybe yeah, you yeah. just get used to hearing him in the American voice. But that makes sense. Um, it's, so it's maybe a bit weird to see him, but it's not like a Sam Neill when like Sam Neill's right. an Australian accent. You're like, yeah, you. <laughs> Yeah. I mean, he's actually Kiwi, but he can do it. Is he Kiwi? I think he is, actually, Sam Neill. Wow. Okay, that's news to me. Uh, Also coming to cinemas this week is The Croods, A New Age, which sees the prehistoric family return in the sequel to the 2013 film. I didn't realize that's how old The Croods is. This time challenged by rival family, The Bettermans, who claim to be better and more evolved. And finally, a preview screening, which starts this Thursday, the 31st of December, 
pieces of a woman which sees Vanessa Kirby and Shia LaBeouf play a couple reeling from tragedy in their own separate ways. Now, this is, again, previewed on the 31st, but it comes to Netflix in a week. So if you're happy to wait, don't have to wait that long. Yeah. Easy. Well, we're not watching any of those next week on the show, Jake, but we are watching something that is new in cinemas. We are. But, Jake, what are we watching? Next week on the show, we're watching Wonder Woman 1984. Welcome to the future. Life is good, but it can be better. Why shouldn't it be? All you need is to want it. Think about finally having everything you always wanted. I can save today, but you can save the world. But why into the 1980s, as Wonder Woman's next big screen adventure, maybe small screen for some other countries, finds her facing two all-new foes, Max Lord and the Cheetah. And Zeke, I think it's just, I mean, you came up to me and suggested we do this film. Yes. I, I was going to suggest it to you too. And my reasoning was that we're about to finish our last episode of Cinema Sideshow Podcast 2020, and we haven't done a single superhero film all year. And this will be the first episode that comes out in 2021. That's the one. So we would have finished a whole year without a superhero film. Yeah, that that's 2020 in a nutshell, isn't Whereas, it? Whereas, yeah, yeah, I think in our first year, I think we watched at least five on the show. I remember I was saying this to someone the other day, like the first 20 episodes included Shazam, Captain Marvel, Avengers Endgame, like... And then Spider-Man Far From Home was in the mid-20s. Yeah, yeah, so... Um... That's four in the first 25 episodes, I'm pretty sure. <laughs> I feel like it was even more. I'm trying to think. No, because Shazam was probably the odd one in that. Mm, yeah, I can't think of any yeah. others. Well, the, you're right. The point is we did plenty. Plenty. So um, it's it, would, it was nice having a year of none, mm. but obviously it's time to go back. And I've already caught this film. I caught this film today. Yeah. So, um, it'll have be to catch it in the next few days at Hoyts. Yeah. Yeah. Of course. Um, I won't say anything about my viewing experience with this film, okay. but need I say, I haven't missed superhero films. <laughs> <laughs> That's what I will leave it on. Yeah. Fair enough. Fair enough. Well, I, I've actually heard that this film is maybe not intentionally, but it's a very, people I've talked to have seen it have said it's going to be very divisive. That people are either going to love it or hate it. And I've already seen it between people I know. You either love this film or hate this film. So um, I have no idea where I'm going to fall on the spectrum, but we'll find out well, next I, week. For for clarity, was okay. not the... Was pretty high... Uh, no, no, I wasn't high on Wonder Woman as high as everyone else was. But okay. I thought it was... I guess it was probably the most consumable film in the DC... Universe at that time, or even still, I would say still. Maybe okay. Shazam might be the only one that I enjoyed more. Right, you count that in the same. Yeah, it's DC. Um, I guess sure, Shazam would be the only one I actually probably enjoyed a little bit more. I think I'm actually not the biggest critic of Batman v Superman. I think it's um, got moments. I've never that... hated that movie. I've never hated it either. Yeah. It's too long, but. <laughs> 
The two and a half hour version or the three hour version? <laughs> <laughs> or the Justice League fucking ten hour version they're going to And I never watched Justice League and I don't think I ever will. Oh, God. And I haven't seen Aquaman, so... Neither. I haven't seen Aquaman. There you I go. I don't intend to. <laughs> well, but until then, thank you for joining us for the Cinema Sideshow Podcast. I was Zeke. I was Jake. And we'll catch you next week with Wonder Woman 1984. Wonder Woman!